Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 25 for July 20th, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. The Qatar crisis is about Saudi Arabia and one of its closest allies in the region, the UAE, essentially being fed up with their neighbor, Qatar. That's Institute scholar Lori Plotkin-Bogart, who joins us today to explain the Qatar crisis, what it is, why it's happening now, and how it affects key American interests, such as containing Iran and defeating ISIS. After this. This is Rob Satloff. Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. We're speaking today with Lori Plotkin-Bogart, the Institute's Barbara Kay Family Fellow. Lori is an expert on Arab Gulf politics and American relations with the Gulf states. Before joining the Institute, she worked for more than 10 years as a Middle East analyst for the U.S. intelligence community. Lori, welcome to Near East PolicyCast. Thank you, Scott. Well, in the news, we're hearing a lot about the Qatar crisis. Bottom line, what is the Qatar crisis and where did it come from? Why is it happening now? At its core, uh, the Qatar crisis is about Saudi Arabia and one of its closest allies in the region, the UAE, essentially being fed up with their neighbor, Qatar. And this is because of uh, Qatar's behavior that's widely understood as undermining their own security and undermining the security of the region. The Saudis and the Emiratis have seen Qatar play play host to their opposition elements. They've seen Qatar agitate their populations against them via media platforms. And and generally, they've seen Qatar support a a wide range of dangerous forces in the region, including extremist forces. And and by the way, it's important to to mention that Qatar can can say a lot of these things about Saudi Arabia and, and the United Arab Emirates as well. But generally, even from a a U.S. government perspective, Qatar's relationship with with radical forces in the region is particularly particularly troubling and and damaging. On that point, would would you call Qatar's support or lack of action against extremist groups a difference in kind or a difference merely in degree between similar things that have been noted with regard to Saudi Arabia and the UAE? Right. I mean, this is an important component of the story, especially when it comes to some of the biggest U.S. uh, security interests in the region. You know, as as most of the Gulf states will say themselves by now with regard to to counterterrorism financing operations and and campaigns, none of them are, are perfect. But uh, but to U.S. officials and and government analysts working on these issues uh, with the Gulf states, there's there's a clear hierarchy uh, when it comes to who's the who's the most proactive against terrorist financiers and who cooperates with the U.S. on CT issues most easily. And frankly, Qatar has been near the bottom of the list. It's important to say that Qatar has taken steps in recent years and and even in recent days and weeks in the context of of the current crisis. But these steps have been limited. They've been slow and they've been 
pursued essentially only under tremendous amounts of pressure. So there are valid questions about whether Qatar can institute real substantive change after all these years. And this is something that our, that our Saudi and Emirati partners are concerned about too. But, but for sure, the United States would, would welcome it. And uh, essentially, it would require a shift in Qatar's political approach. Well, and you mentioned several of the Gulf states' complaints against Qatar deal with media issues, and, and that I think for many Americans will boil down to Al Jazeera. So when it comes to Al Jazeera, is this an issue of press liberty or an issue of support for extremism? So it's certainly not an issue of press freedom. There's, there's no free press in Qatar. There's no free speech in Qatar. And uh, uh, Al Jazeera, is, it's a state-funded channel with a state agenda. But that being said, um, Al Jazeera does have many faces. Its English channel does reporting that, that rivals some American uh, uh, stations. And its Arabic channel you know, has hosted legitimate voices that don't get airtime on other uh, state media in the region. But, but the bottom line is that Al Jazeera Arabic also hosts terrorists and terrorist supporters and it provides a platform for them to uh, spread radical ideology. And this is something that, that shouldn't be overlooked, and, and it's irresponsible to turn a bl- blind eye to this, particularly given you know, the, the, the risk, the, the high risk of extremism in the region right now. I think you know, originally the Saudis and the Emiratis called for the complete shutdown of Al Jazeera, and I think they've come around to saying, okay, we're not asking for a complete shutdown, but let's address some of the programming. And I think that that's a positive development and, and a worthwhile effort that the U.S. should work with and support. We've talked about terrorist financing and Al Jazeera, yet we've barely scratched the surface of the Saudi list of complaints. So can you boil it down to first principles for us? What is the confrontation with Qatar really about? It's about it's essentially about the security and survival of the Gulf of the Gulf monarchies. And you know the, the, the Gulf monarchies have been among the survivors of this uh, post Arab Spring environment, but that's been ravaged by war, civil war, revolution, extremist forces. And um, even though the Gulf monarchies have survived, this environment, they they continue to be gravely concerned about dangerous forces infecting the stability and security of their own societies, and and they're conti- you know they continue to ask how do how do we how do we protect ourselves? So for the the Saudis and the Emiratis, part of the answer lies in getting Doha to stop providing support to extremists as well as those countries' opposition. The, the break in relations involves not only Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, but also the small island uh, uh, Gulf state of Bahrain and Egypt. And this break is, is very deep and far-reaching. It includes uh, a break in, in, in political relationships, economic relationships, social relationships, Qatar is essentially not uh, able to use the airspace 
of its neighbors. It can't use its land border, its only land border, which is with Saudi Arabia. Qataris living in the, the boycotting countries are being forced to, to leave their businesses, leave their university education there. And, and you probably read that, that Qatar is even uh, uh, flying in hundreds of cows into the country to meet its dairy needs, uh, which used to be satisfied by, by Saudi Arabia. So in, in general, I think it's useful to think about this rift that's exploded into to full public view. So think about this rift as, a, as an earthquake that's, that's shaking the region, that's dividing the region. And, and when the dust settles, I think things will look quite different from what we're used to and from what we saw only, uh, only six weeks ago. Well, and it seems that if, if this is ultimately about the, the Saudi side of the dispute's perception of their very survival as uh, a kingdom, as a monarchy, that when it comes time to attempt to develop solutions or mediations, this isn't really about a list of particulars to be negotiated. It's more about existential questions of regime survival and national identity. That's a much trickier question. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Saudis, the Emiratis, as, as well as the Bahrainis and Egyptians are, are very concerned about various kinds of extremist forces in the region and the impact on their own countries. And they're willing to take drastic measures to try and protect themselves. It would seem, though, that most of the, the threats that the uh, other Gulf states perceive would apply equally to Qatar. So why does Qatar's sense of their own ability to survive and the threats, the potentially existential threats facing their regime, why does their interpretation differ so greatly? Right. It's a good question. I mean, the Qatar is also a monarchy like the other GCC states. It has a very similar political system, but its approach to security has been different from, from that powerhouse in the region, certainly from Saudi Arabia. And Qatar has sought to essentially embrace different kinds of forces and different kinds of actors from across the regional spectrum. So, for example, it's had, uh, it has ties with Israel. It has ties with Iran, working relationship with Iran. It has uh, uh, its host to the largest uh, U.S. military base in the region. There is uh, uh, some relationship with various kinds of uh, jihadist forces in the region. And the, I think the, the basic calculation, one of the basic calculations that the Qataris are making is that by having all these kinds of relationships, they're making themselves particularly useful and particularly critical to all different kinds of actors, which helps guarantee their security. Qatar is only, you know, it's a very tiny country. There are only about 300,000 Qatari citizens, and they're about uh, a little bit over a million and a half, two million foreign residents in Qatar. But it's, you know, it's, it's geographically, it's between uh, very large, powerful players, Iran to the east, uh, Saudi Arabia to the west, Iraq a little bit to the north, 
and it's had decided to to follow a different kind of security strategy than the other many of the other Gulf states. As a country in between, it's it's been following more of a hedging strategy then? Well, some some people have used the hedging term. I, I think it's useful to think of Qatar as friends with everyone, as welcoming all kinds of relationships. And sometimes this is, you know, looked upon positively by regional actors in the United States, but often it's also looked upon very negatively as essentially supporting, providing, uh, uh, providing support to the very dangerous forces that, uh, for example, the counter-ISIS coalition is trying to eradicate from the region. And when it comes to the question of, of timing, why now? It's been suggested that President Trump's visit to Riyadh triggered the Saudi ultimatum to Qatar. Is this true? I think the Trump visit to Riyadh is part of the the larger picture. I mean, if you remember when when Trump was in Riyadh in, in late May, he gave a speech to about 50 plus leaders of Muslim majority countries. And he essentially encouraged them to take security into their own hands, take the region's uh, security into their own hands. You may recall he said, drive them out, drive out the terrorists, take action against the terrorist supporters. And I think from a, from a Saudi and Emirati perspective, this is essentially what they've done. They have taken security into their own hands and made an aggressive move an aggressive move against a state which they believe, and and many in in the United States would agree with them, they believe fuels extremism in the region. I think the larger backdrop to this crisis is the general support that uh, leaders like Mohammed uh, bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, the new crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and, and Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, of the UAE was the de facto leader of the, the UAE. I think the the general support that they feel for their worldview and their idea of what security looks like in the region, that they have this support from Trump. Both of these leaders worked very hard to cultivate support for their worldview, their idea of what security looks like in the region with President Trump, even before the inauguration. I mean, this goes back to uh, immediately after Trump's election in November. So Saudi Arabia and the UAE have spent a lot of energy and effort to try to recruit Trump to their worldview. And I think they, I think they had, you know, a, a fair sense that if they moved against Qatar, they would have the support of President Trump. And, and so far, if, if, this, if this was indeed their calculation, I think we can say that their, you know, their, their calculation has proved accurate. That speaks to what uh, Saudi, Egyptian, uh, that side of the ledger sees uh, as what's at stake for them and their interests. What's at stake for U.S. interests, though, in the Qatar crisis? There's a great deal at stake for the United States. I mean, if we think of all of almost all of our key interests in the region, so that's, you know, the war against ISIS, 
which by the way is is run operationally out of Qatar at the at the airbase there. The the larger battle uh, against Al Qaeda and and, and other uh, jihadi groups, deterring Iran's destabilizing activities working uh, towards kind of longer-term stability in the region, guaranteeing the, the supply of oil from the Gulf to the world economy and to world buyers. All, all of these issues carry the potential to be impacted negatively by this crisis. If, if there's a destabilization to one, of more, one or more countries that results from the crisis, or if there's kind of a, 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 some alliance shifting, which we've already seen that results results from the rift. So there's a lot at stake. At the, at the same time, in the same breath, I think it's important to talk about what would happen if we continued as is. Qatar's behavior has been dangerous from uh, a, a U.S. government perspective, even though they've also been a, a very good ally on many levels. And the U.S. has tried for years in the context of a very close relationship with Qatar. They've, they've tried for years to try to encourage Qatar to change uh, some of its political approach. And the U.S. has had limited success. So right now it's really a gamble to say how this crisis is going to pan out. For example, is this crisis ultimately going to help the cause of, of fighting extremism, or is it going to hinder the cause of, of fighting extremism? And I think the question that we want to focus on right now is how do we try to steer the current situation so, it, so that it helps that fight? And I think, frankly, the answer is working with uh, all parties in the crisis on the on the terrorism challenge, on issues of financial po- support as well as issues of ideological uh, support for extremist forces. That role for Washington that you're recommending is 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 that is that primarily a a long term strategy about changing the basic facts on the ground and the incentive structures that the various governments face, or is that a course that might permit a more immediate calming of tensions and reconciliation in the very near term between Saudi Arabia and its partners in the crisis and uh, Qatar on the other hand? I, I think there's a good chance that we'll be in this crisis mode for a while, unfortunately. I think I think this, this crisis mode is actually the, the, the new normal. And um, this is the case, given some foreign policy challenges we have here in Washington, as well as the positions, the very strong and firm positions of our Gulf partners. One of the challenges we're having is that we face in this crisis is that we're hearing uh, mixed messages from different corners in Washington. And of course, not only Americans are hearing this, but our our, our Gulf partners are as well. President Trump has, has essentially taken the, the Saudi and Emirati side in the conflict, essentially saying that the, the priority is fighting terrorist support, fighting terrorist financing. Uh, Secretary Tillerson, and as, as well as the Pentagon, seem to be most concerned about, about the threat to stability that this crisis has created. And, and they seem 
somewhat sympathetic to Qatar's position in this regard. And, and, and meanwhile, all the different parties of the conflict, the Saudis, the Emiratis, and the Qataris, they are all seeing uh, 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 pockets of high-level support in Washington uh, for their positions, and they're they're digging in this, digging in their heels. And I think this is part of the reason. And it, and it looks like this mixed message challenge won't go away. Another challenge is, is that the Emiratis have essentially come out and, and said a number of times, "We want to solve this crisis." in the region. We want to deal with our neighbors and find a solution in the region. So of course, you know, all of these all of our all of these actors that uh, have strong relationships with with Washington and and certainly don't want to look like they're not willing to to discuss the problems with them. But this is a challenge for Washington if some of the key parties in the conflict really want to find a solution uh, within the Gulf, within the Gulf Cooperation Council, rather than the uh, outside actors. You've said that this could become the new normal, though. So what would a permanent rift among the Gulf Arab states mean for American policy with regard to both Iran and the fight against ISIS? A permanent rift would complicate U.S. policy on these issues, certainly, uh, with regard to Iran, I think one of the biggest fears is that a divided GCC, a divided Gulf, would create opportunities for Tehran to to exploit. That it provides uh, essentially inroads. A divided GCC provides inroads to Tehran. And already we've seen some manifestations of Iran trying to uh, move in a bit more in the neighborhood in the context of this crisis. For example, they, they rushed to, to Qatar's aid to try to put, uh, keep the supply of, of food in Qatari stores at the start of, of the boycott. This was very important and helpful for Qatar. We also see some indications that maybe the Iranians are interested in tightening relations with Oman, uh, which has also have been a, a, another Gulf state, which has been a more neutral party when it comes to this divide. And, and, and Oman may be interested also in these kinds of relations. But I think we can say generally that a stronger and more powerful uh, revolutionary government in Iran is not in the U.S. interest and not in the interest of any of our Gulf allies. As for the war on ISIS, Qatar is host to the airbase from which, you know, the counter-ISIS coalition essentially conducts its operation against the group in, in, in Iraq and Syria. So how much would the boycott, how much is the boycott going to impact the daily functioning of the airbase air over the long term? What kind of effect would this deep rift between some of the Gulf the, the Gulf parties who are critical components of the anti-ISIS coalition, what kind of effect is this rift going to have on joint counterterrorism campaigns in the region? I think these are all important questions that Washington is thinking about. At the same time, I, I do think it's fair to ask how big is the risk of continued Qatari support 
to dangerous forces in the region. This is also an important point to consider. I think the bottom line is that this is uncharted territory that we're entering. And, and Washington uh, should continue to, to do its best to, to minimize potential risks in this crisis, uh, essentially by preventing escalation. That's a realistic expectation right now, to try and prevent escalation of this crisis. And, and the opportunity is, uh, that's ahead of us is to try, try to strengthen counterterrorism cooperation and campaigns with, with all of our, our partners in the region. We've been speaking today about the Qatar crisis with Lori Plotkin-Bogart, the Institute's Barbara Kay Family Fellow. Lori is an expert on Arab Gulf politics and American relations with the Gulf states and a former intelligence analyst. You can follow Lori on Twitter at LP Bogart. That's L-P-B-O-G-H-A-R-D-T. Lori, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Scott. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.